0: Good morning, Veritas. How we doing? Love it. Love the energy. You guys having a good summer so far? Yay? Nay? Anybody ready for summer to be over? Okay. I see one. Uh, My wife and I yesterday decided, you know, what a great day. Take our kids out to the splash pad. I would pull up the weather and it's like, 90, not bad. But then you keep scrolling, you see the heat index, it's like, 109. I'm like... I sweat if the weather is over 70, okay? This is miserable. I'm ready for summer to be done. And, I mean, just hearing Ian tell stories about our college students, number one, I'm ready for fall because I'm ready for our college students to be back. Like, as a college ministry director, I just, I long for our city to be more full of college students. But also, I'm like, hey, cooler temperatures? I'll take it. Crockpot season? Anybody? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We love crockpots. We want chili and cinnamon rolls, right? Um, I also, just this week, uh, Thursday, got to watch the first NFL game of the year. I'm like, hey, football season? I'm about it, right? Fall, fall is a great time of year for a guy like me. And part of that is because I love football, right? Brand it any way you want, NFL, XFL, College football, you name it, I'm about it, okay? But one of, the, one of the primary ways I enjoy football is high school football. Like, Friday nights, underneath the lights, getting to watch, like, freshman through senior dudes just duke it out on the field. Anybody with me? Friday night lights thats where it's at. Uh, but part of me also, if I'm being honest with you, I kind of just like to relive my glory days, Yeah, like, I'm not ready to close the yearbook yet. I I like to think back to, you know, high school football. That was was awesome. Like, back when I used to be tough, and I I actually only played two years of high school football because my first two years I was too small for football. Decided to run cross country so I wouldn't get hurt. Uh, But actually, by my senior year our high school team had really turned it around. Sophomore year, they went 0-9, like zero wins, nine losses. That went, that was my brother's senior year, so tough, tough for you, man. Um, but my, by my senior year, we had turned it around. We were 8-3, and three, and we were heading to a playoff game, all right? This is one of the last games I got to play in as a senior in high school, and I relive this game uh, frequently when fall rolls around. I just can't help but think back and be like, man, remember that one time? So October 2009, Manson Northwest Webster, small school. You've probably never heard of it. Uh, we're driving down to Mount Air, which is by the Missouri border, over a three-hour bus ride down there. And this was actually kind of a dreaded game because the year before we played them in the playoffs, and we got beat. We actually got thumped. Like, it wasn't even close. And so we're getting on the bus. We're driving down. We're like, okay, here we go again. Is this going to be another, like, Terrible bus ride home after the game. Well, good news is, the game was going drastically different, okay? Manson were were leading the majority of the game until 50 seconds left in the game. Mount Air scores a touchdown, and they go up 21 to 20. Yeah, 50 seconds left in the game, and it's just like, okay, all the wind that was in our sails just instantly just gets, like, sucked out of the sails. We feel defeated our confidence that once was, like, raging high is now, like, okay, what's the point? Like, this is tough. And then as a special teams player, you know, you're, you're used to, like, getting, what, three minutes of a practice to go out and practice your kicker turn once? It's like, I have to go out and take the field now? Like, man, this isn't the offense. We're, we're the special teams. We're stepping onto the field. And you just feel like you're insignificant. And really, you feel defeated. And I don't know about you, I know you've probably never, many of you have never played football, that's okay, Um, but if you've been a human for any amount of time, and if you've followed Jesus for any amount of time, you know what this feels like. To have, like, a ton of confidence and for things to be going well, I just, I can't help but think through my first several, like, months, even years of following Jesus, like, seeing all this victory in my life and having all of these high points. And then it's like the 50 second left in the game moment where ordinary starts to settle in and you just start to look around and you're like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm winning anymore. Like this doesn't feel like the victory that I once was having. You know, your your dad gets diagnosed with cancer. Your Your finances are struggling. You're looking at The economy and your investments, you're fearfully watching the headlines. I mean, talking to parents over the last several weeks who are like, man, we don't know where to send our kids to school. I mean, it's one thing for me, I have like 40 years left on this earth, Lord willing, but my kids have another 70. Like, what about them? I'm afraid of the future of America when it comes to like gender identification and just an apparent loss of truth, we even inside the church are beginning to act as though we're losing. We feel defeated. And so if you're on the special teams, on my football team, the easy thing for you to do is to step on the field and to just mope, right? To just be like, okay, here we go. Another insignificant play in a game that already feels like it's over. But you don't want to do that with your life, Okay, it's one thing to do that in a football game, but to do that with your life, to step out of these doors when we leave today and just be like, all right, here goes another week. You know, circumstances aren't going our way, so I guess we'll just do this thing again. We'll see you back next week and sing a few songs. You don't want to do that with your life. You actually, I know this is true, you want to leave here with hope. You want to leave with confidence. You want to know that what you're experiencing right now is not actually all there is to it. Okay, so open up your Bibles to Haggai 2. So we're going to close out this book. Um, you may be thinking four verses if you looked at your um, little program. It's like shortest sermon from Haggai. Probably not the shortest sermon you'll hear in our series, just a forewarning. Uh, but here's where we've been, okay? Haggai 1. God actually, through the prophet Haggai, begins to speak to his people, Israel. They have returned for almost 70 years in exile to the city of Jerusalem. And it's, in many ways, a sign of promise to God's people. Like, they get to come back to the land. The temple remains in ruins, and here's what God's people do. They come back, and rather than rebuilding the temple and making their priority God, They rebuild their own houses, and they they make themselves the priority. And so in Haggai 1, God offers a sharp rebuke to his people, and he says, what are you doing? Like, I have made a way for you to come back, and now you're focused on you while my temple lays in ruins? That's like how you get to experience the presence of God at the temple. You're just going to let that lay by the wayside? So he tells them, hey, here's what's true. I'm with you. And this temple deserves your focus, deserves to be priority. So, a few weeks pass, the people repent, they respond, they start rebuilding, another month passes, and beginning of Haggai 2, we see God actually speaking a word of encouragement to Israel. So they've been rebuilding this temple, and they're looking at it, and it looks like trash. Right? God would say, you're looking at this, and it looks as though it's nothing, And they were comparing it to Solomon's temple. They were trying to say, man, this has nothing compared to Solomon's. The guy says, no, that's not true, okay? My spirit remains in your midst. The same power of God that filled Solomon's temple, I am here, I am with you, I am going to fill this temple. And in fact, this temple is going to be far greater than the one that you're looking back to. So he brings this word of encouragement. Two months pass, and last week... Matthew walked us through this, this message of another rebuke, right? Israel had been faithful, or so they thought, in rebuilding this temple from the ground up. They're brick by brick just showing up day after day, laying the foundation, and they have to be thinking, man, we're so good. <laughs> Look at us. We're doing what God told us to do. But God doesn't just see their outward obedience. He sees their heart, and he's like, you know what? You're doing this with the wrong reasons, This isn't about my glory. This is about you. And so you need to cut it out. I want you to keep rebuilding the temple, but what I want you to know is I want your heart. I don't want your service. I want your heart. And so by the time we get to this message, this is actually delivered on the same exact day, God is speaking through the prophet Haggai another message of encouragement. So you see a rebuke, an encouragement, a rebuke, and now another encouragement. And he is giving this message to a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, as we will see, is the governor of Judah. And what you need to know about him him is he was probably the most discouraged person of the remnant that returned. Okay, Because he is looking back at scripture and he sees that when God chose Israel... And he made a covenant with his people. It was marked by two signs. Okay, number one, the rebuilding of the temple. And number two, kingship. That on the throne would be a Davidic king from Israel. And what is Zerubbabel? Is he a king? He's a governor. He's just a governor. He has come back. He sees the temple being rebuilt, but he looks at his circumstances, and he doesn't see kingship. All he sees is Persian rule and authority. He can't help but just look out to see chariots everywhere, soldiers marching through the field, signs of bondage everywhere, as Israel remains under foreign power. And as their political leader... He's starting to be fearful. He's asking this question when will it ever be? Will we will Israel ever be a kingdom again? Will we ever be free from this foreign power? You see, it would have been easy for Zerubbabel to be the guy who's defeated, the one moping around, the one that says, Man, Persians, what are we gonna do? No hope. To just live in despair, and to just go through the motions the rest of his life. But God wasn't going to let Zerubbabel do that, okay? We have to read the last four verses of this book to understand this message of hope that God is giving to the governor of Judah. Read with me. Spirit of God says... Verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Again, same day of this last message. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is a message of incredible promise. And you might not catch that when you first read this because it's using terminology and stuff that is not super familiar to you. But let me tell you, Israel knew their Bibles, okay, a lot better than me too today. And as they're reading God's word, as God is delivering this word to their leader and ultimately to them, they are seeing signs of hope. Three things we need to observe as we just look at these four verses, okay? Number one, God is going to win. God is going to win. And he makes that abundantly clear to Zerubbabel. He uses language just like he did in early Haggai 2, and he says, I'm going to shake the nations, okay? Early Haggai 2, he, he used the same language, but he was talking about I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to bring their wealth for the rebuilding of the temple. This time, when he's talking about shaking the nation, nations, he's talking about destruction. Okay, He's saying all the evil authorities, all the, the kingdoms that you think are raging over you, they're mine. And they will not get the final word. I am going to win. And he actually uses so many signs and symptoms of Israel's heritage to just call their attention to how he's going to do this, okay? First, we see this word overthrow. The word overthrow was used in Genesis 19 when God annihilated Sodom and Gomorrah. He looked at their pagan culture and practice, and he's like, this has no place in the kingdom of God. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. This next word, destroy, some of your translations might say shatter, shatter. Um, I'm going to shatter the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, was pointing to God's faithfulness in Deuteronomy 7 when he's talking about the Canaanites. As Israel would take the promised land, God promised the Canaanites will be destroyed because I don't want you to get to the promised land and be captivated by their idol worship. So they are going to be destroyed. Then we see a reference to Chariots and riders, or horses and riders, this is a clear sign of God's faithfulness to Israel in Exodus, Exodus 14 and 15. As Israel is brought out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea, we see God destroy the chariots, the horses, and the riders of Egypt as the Red Sea collapses in on them. And lastly, but not least, we see every one of his sword by his brother. This is calling their attention back to Judges 7, where Gideon's army defeats the Midianites. Far outnumbered, they felt like they were up against an insurmountable task. God brings confusion amongst the Midianites, and they take themselves out. God is saying, remember all those times that I provided for Israel, and that Israel came out victorious? That's exactly how I'm going to do it again. Like, I am going to win. And from that, our second observation is that God is responsible for the win. If you just look at this text and say, okay, what role does Zerubbabel play? What role does Israel play? How did they come to power? Is it through insurrection of the Persian Empire? No. They actually are not called to take matters into their own hands. It says... Look at what God is going to do, okay? The repeated use of I. I am going to shake the heavens. I am going to overthrow the kingdoms. I am going to destroy the, the strength of the nations. I am going to overthrow the chariots. I am going to take you, Zerubbabel, and I am going to make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. God is the primary actor here. In four verses, God makes it abundantly clear. The victory does not come because of us. It comes because of him. And just to make matters all the more clear, he refers, again, back to the Midianites. He captures our attention by saying, hey, everyone is going to be taken out by the sword of his brother. This isn't you fighting. I'm going to use my power to show that you get the victory, even though you're not the one fighting. So God wins. God is responsible for the win. But then lastly, God is going to use Zerubbabel. It's fascinating. As you start to look at how he begins to speak to Zerubbabel, he calls attention to the fact that he is the governor of Judah. He sees that he feels insignificant. He understands that Zerubbabel is looking at what should be a kingdom, and he's a governor. That he in the nation-state of Israel lack the respect that they feel that they should be given. But God doesn't leave Zerubbabel there. He actually gives him this promise. He says, I will make you like a signet ring. And for us, we look at that and we're like, what does that mean? That means nothing to us. But in Bible times, in the ancient day, okay, a signet ring had incredible power. Yes, a metal piece of jewelry but not just any piece of jewelry. This was like the most prized possession that one could have because the signet ring was actually placed either around a necklace or on one's hand, and it was meant to have the authority of the king. So the person owning it, though they were not the king, were given the signet ring and said, hey, any document that comes before you, any royal decree that comes before you, you can put a stamp of approval on it because you now have the authority of the king. It's a big deal. And so God is telling the governor of Judah, hey, this kingship that you're worried about, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. I'm going to show you that you have authority. I'm going to give you this authority. Again, I have chosen you and made you like a signet ring. And so... You look at all of this, and God is, God is trying to fix Zerubbabel's eyes forward. He's trying to make him think about the future. He's trying to get his eyes up and above the Persian Empire and all the catastrophe going on around him, saying, This is what's going to happen. And now for us, Veritas, we get this crazy reality to understand that this has already happened. Isn't that insane? That though God is telling Zerubbabel, look forward, look at what's going to happen. We look back and say, this has already happened. Zerubbabel was this guy who was supposed to become the signet ring. And actually the language in verse 23 calls him a servant, a son, and a signet ring. These are all words or phrases that were used throughout the Old Testament to point towards a messiah to point towards the messianic king that came from the line of David. And if you understand your Old Testament well enough, you understand that Zerubbabel had right reason to feel like this kingdom was not going to come. Because his grandfather, King Kaniah, was actually rebuked and given a curse in Jeremiah 22. We're going to look at it. God said to him, As I live, declares the Lord, Though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I will tear you off. Because of King Kaniah's rebellion and Israel's rebellion, God appears to have canceled the covenant with Israel. He said, You know how I talked about that Davidic kingship, that the Messiah would come from your family line? I'm going to rip that off your hand. This is his grandpa. You better believe he's walking, understanding, like, man, it all ended with us. But, hey, guy, two, we see God restoring this promise to Zerubbabel. He's like, hey, I'm not done with you. The signet ring is back on, okay? You can flip, if you have a physical Bible, flip six or seven pages to Matthew 1. And you're going to find out, Matthew 1, verses 12 and 13, Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus Christ. God is true to his promises. He says, this Davidic king will come from you, Zerubbabel. This kingship will be restored. And so, in one sense, God used Zerubbabel. We already know that to be true. Now, is God responsible for the win? Look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, Jesus came, first and foremost, to bring glory to his father, but he did this in such a way that he was redeeming humanity unto himself. And in order to do that, he had to overcome sin and death and Satan. And so the question is, how did he do that? Did he become the religious ruler, the political king that Israel wanted? No, he became a servant He was despised and rejected. He was scorned. He was put on a cross. And the Messiah, the king of the universe, defeats death. How? By dying. He defeats sin. How? By taking on the sin of the world. Bearing the wrath of humanity on his shoulders. Just like every rider would go down by the sword of his brother, death is defeated by death and sin is defeated by sin. We already see that to be true because Jesus has already lived, died, and risen again. And with that, God is going to win. God is going to win. In fact, he has already declared sin and death powerless. We as Christians can stare death in the face and we can say, death, where is your victory? You have no sting on me. Jesus has already accomplished this for us today, and yet we are like Zerubbabel. We're stuck in an in-between because though God has come to Zerubbabel and he has made these amazing promises and he has said, I have chosen you and I have made you like a signet ring, the reality was Zerubbabel is going to wake up tomorrow and he's still going to be under the Persian Empire. In fact, if you actually look at Zerubbabel's life, He never ruled on a throne of Israel. He didn't live to see the thrones of the kingdoms overthrown. And he certainly never saw that his name would end up in the genealogy of Jesus. And so though he has these promises, he hasn't yet seen them realized. And though you and me live in light of the promise of Jesus Christ, who has come and has given us this victory We haven't yet seen it fully realized because Jesus has not yet come back. And so here's what's happened, okay? Though we have these promises to cling to, we as a fallen people have taken our eyes off of eternity and we have looked around. We're not looking up, we're looking down. We see the here and now. And our hope is shattered. Right? We think, yeah, sure, God, you saved me from my sin, but... What about my finances? What about my health? What about my kid who is straying in the faith? What about this dream job that I want that isn't coming? What about this marriage that I long for that seems so distant? Are you winning? We're robbed of hope because we're looking down. We're not looking up, we're not looking past at God's promises. And so, Zerubbabel needed to be reminded of an eternity. And we, here at Veritas, we need to be reminded of an eternity. That God is not done with you yet. God is not done with us yet. And Zerubbabel needed this to be faithful to finish the temple. He needed this promise that God would not just restore the temple, but that he would restore Israel to finish the task before him. And I'm telling you, there is time on the clock left on your life. And you have to figure out what it's going to look like to get back out on the field and play another down. But we're not called to just do this in, like, cautious optimism, like, oh, I hope this pans out. We're actually called to live with hope. And hope actually clings to a promise of God and says, this isn't some wishy-washy thing that we hope comes true. It's already done. We're declaring it as finished, and we're going to walk in light of it. And so Jesus knows that this life is going to be hard for us, okay? In John 16, he's talking to his disciples. He talks about his soon-to-be death, that he will be restored to the Father. And his followers are afraid, okay? Here's what he says to them. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Veritas, hear me. In this world you will suffer, you will struggle, it will be hard. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Talks past tense. Not I will overcome the world, I have overcome the world. Jesus is declaring his victory is already done. I have overcome the world. Another text in Matthew, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who's building the church? Is it us? No, it's God. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I find this fascinating. I listened to a podcast a couple weeks ago, a couple pastors talking about this, and they said, you know, most of us, as we read Matthew 16, 18, we read it as if it says, God's church is going to continue to gather, and no matter what attack Satan throws at it, Satan isn't going to win. But they, they ask this question, are the gates a weapon? <laughs> no. The, the gates uh, are a defense. So it's not that hell is on the offense, we're on the defense just holding out hope that God shows up. No, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We have the power and the authority of God. We get to step into this victory. We don't have to be afraid. Satan is the one who has to be afraid. Death is the one that has to be afraid. We actually get to step onto the field with confidence because we know how this game ends. Okay, Revelation 21 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you uh, an application relating to this. So go ahead, highlight it, put it in brackets. We're going to come back to it. God looks at Revelation 21, and he, he peels back the curtain of eternity for us, and he says, this is what it's going to be like. A new heaven and a new earth. The first earth has passed away. A new Jerusalem. How sweet of news would that be? To Zerubbabel, a new Jerusalem, one that is not subject to Persian rule. A new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain, for the former things have passed away. This is what is coming to us. Followers of Jesus Christ, this is what is waiting for us. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. They will happen. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is what is waiting for us. Shouldn't that change the way we live then? You see, hope is not just something we believe in our head. It actually shapes the way we live our lives. And so if you put yourself back in that football game that I talked about at the beginning, wouldn't it be helpful if you were about to step on the field as a special teams player to know how that game ends? Here's how it ends. Okay, Mount Air has one job. Do not kick the ball to Zach Steinhoff. Okay, kid is an all-state wide receiver, freak athlete. All they had to do was not kick it to him, and here's what they did. They kicked it right to him. He fields it at the five and takes it 95 yards to the house. Yeah, we win 28-21. Now, think about this. If you knew that was how this game ended, and you had to step back on the field, is your block insignificant anymore? No, you know that every block counts because it's gonna get Steinhoff to the end zone and the victory is already ours. We don't have to be afraid of what's gonna happen. We can just step on the field. We can have fun. We can play the game and we can know that victory is promised to us. And so Veritas, that is what God is calling Zerubbabel to and that's what he is calling us to. This idea, okay, Look to the certainty of the future to live with confidence today. Look to the certainty of the future to live with confidence today. No more moping, complaining, fear, anxiety, worry about all the stuff that's going on around us. No, confident expectation that God is going to win, that He is responsible, that we can follow His lead, and that He is going to use us. That's crazy. And we should rightly feel insignificant, like Zerubbabel. Like, God, us? Me? Cedar Rapids, Iowa? Seriously? That's who you're going to use? Yes, absolutely. This is God's plan A, to use the foolishness of man so that he gets the glory in the end. And so you better believe he wants to use us, the church, Veritas to bring about his redemptive plan to the ends of the earth. And with that, we get to walk out these doors and live with confident hope and expectation. So, quick application for you. Number one, have a minute meditation on Revelation 21. Okay? If you're, you have it on your Bible app, screenshot it, set it as your wallpaper, because statistics tell me that you pick your phone up more than 100 times a day. Bare minimum, once every 10 minutes, if you're an average American. What would it look like if every 10 minutes you were reminded of what is going to happen in eternity? I think that would change your hope. A minute meditation on Revelation 21, 1 through 7. And with that, to begin to live with hope. I've already alluded to this, okay? Hope is not something that stays in our head. It shapes the way we live would we be a people veritas that yes though we understand this life is going to be hard right the next 5 15 50 years lord willing are going to be a struggle but are we actually going to take jesus at his word when he says i have overcome the world how that change the way we live A question I catch myself asking to college students frequently as I disciple them. Will this matter 50 years from now? And they might say, maybe. And then I say, will this matter 50 million years from now? (laughs) It shrinks it in comparison. When you're face to face with God, when you're worshiping with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from all around the world, where's your worry? It's gone. Because you know that God was true to his promise. Therefore, as we begin to think about the next 50 million years, we should be filled with such hope that we get to engage the world around us. And yes, suffering will continue. Struggle will continue. I'm not here promising you that following Jesus is going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. It actually will probably do quite the opposite. You follow a crucified king if you follow Jesus. However, I am here to tell you that your suffering will not get the final word. Because God is going to win. And if we begin to do this, we become a type of people that, that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3, okay? In 1 Peter three fifteen, he says this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, Peter is assuming that as we follow Jesus with hope, people will notice. And I'm not telling you to sit back and wait for someone to ask you about Jesus, to tell them about Jesus, but I am saying, if people can't see the hope in you, you are not shining the light of Jesus the way you should. But if we understand the hope we have in Jesus, we get to live through ridiculous circumstances. Circumstances that this world looks at us and they should be asking, how do they still have hope? And then we get to tell them the reason. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me read Revelation 21, 1 through 7 to you. Do you know how this is going to end? And for followers of Jesus, this is a, a tremendous word. But... I wouldn't be a faithful preacher if I, if I didn't tell you that. For those who don't follow Jesus, this is a terrible warning. Because in, in Haggai 2, God says he's going to shake the nations. He's going to overthrow and destroy evil. And though you might think, I'm not evil, if you have not put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you are boasting in your own works, you are separated from the God of the universe. And you will stand judgment. And that should rightly terrify us. Haggai 2, 20 through 23, is meant to be a word of comfort to the Christian. He is saying, you who follow Jesus, who put your hope in the finished work of Christ, this is the closest to hell you will ever get. Stay faithful, persevere, endure. But for those of you who are separated from God... He is also saying, this is the closest to heaven you will ever get. And he is pleading with you, turn. Trust in the finished work of Jesus, because if you don't, you will be separated from God forever. So, here's where we're at today. I want you to bow your heads. I want us to pray. It's all we can do when we, when we land at a text like this that has such a stern warning and a strong promise to bow our heads and to say, God, you alone satisfy our hearts. God, you alone make it possible for us to experience victory. We know that this doesn't come from our own works. We understand that apart from you, we have no hope God, everything in this life will let us down ultimately. Our work, our relationships, our health will all fail, but Jesus, you never fail. And I thank you for the promise that is given to us as followers of Jesus Christ in Haggai 2, 20 23, God, that you win, that you are responsible for the win, that we can trust you, that we can live with hope, God, because evil... Sin, suffering, do not get the final word. And so God, this week, this year, for the rest of our lives, God, would you capture our hearts with this focus on eternity that so shapes our faithfulness to you because we understand your faithfulness to us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.